Welcome to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. I'm Richard Dugan, your host. Hey, it's great to have you with us. We're uh, we're going to be uh, doing something a little different today. We're going to be we're going to be taking a road trip. That's right, on the road less traveled. What's that all about? Well, you got to stay tuned for that one. I'm going to tell you about that and our guest and his website and all the inf- great information that he's been providing through this memoir. And uh, we hope you'll stay with us here on Tell Me Your Story. As we do come your way Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. Monday mornings at 1 a.m. streaming live at those times at richarddugan.com. The podcasts are on SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher Player FM, Blueberry, and other locations that you folks are reposting us to. And thank you for doing that. Also, um, a video cast. That's right. You can watch these interviews on YouTube. Go to the channel, Richard Dugan, or tell me your story. Look for the guy with the hat. Not not going to be tough to miss. And uh, let's see. What else can I tell you? Oh, uh, we ask you if you can do so. If the program resonates with you, you'd like to support the work that we are doing here, that we've been doing now for nearly 14 years, that I've been doing for over 40 years. Um, financially, we'd greatly appreciate that. That's why we have a PayPal and Patreon account for your security as well as ours. And we ask you to participate. We don't ask much, but we ask you to participate in something we like to call the Decade of Perfect Vision, the 2020s, where you go within, you spend time in that peaceful, quiet place, listening to that still, small voice. With all of that said, we are going to jump into our program today, and it is On the Road Less Traveled. No, it would be nice if Charles Kuralt was joining us, but unfortunately he's not with us anymore. But we're going to be talking with the author of a book that has to do with an unlikely journey from the orphanage to the boardroom. And Ed, uh, uh, hey Jim, thank you so much for joining us here on the program. Thank you for joining. Thank you for having me. You bet. Um, you have uh, you have gone through quite a quite an ordeal in your life, and I was reading, of course, about the <clears throat> the fact that, uh, and I've seen a few movies and television uh, series uh, on this general subject, if you will, where uh, and sometimes it takes place like either the eighteen or early nineteen hundreds, um, where. You know, somehow, some way, there's an estrangement between the parents, and one of the parents just says, you know what, kid, you're coming with me, and then starts telling them all kinds of stories, and that's kind of what happened to you, and that's, this is this is what is referred to, if I'm correct, this is your memoir at this particular point in your life, right? That's correct, very correct, exactly, and it is, one, one of my reviewers said, it reads like fiction, but it's real life. Yeah, and that's what's really bizarre about these stories, yours obviously included, is that it does read like fiction. It's like, no, 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 no. I mean, Hollywood, sure, but real life? Come on. This is this is America. This is, uh, you know, family and community and all of those things. And we've got people that are playing around with kids' lives? Wow. It just it just blows my mind. I think about my parents, and then they've been together now. My dad is ninety years old this year. My mother eighty seven. Been married. Uh, what is it now? <clears throat> uh, how did I, I did the math? Sixty five years. Oh boy! Yeah, still together, doing well in Phoenix. Uh, I can't even imagine uh, if 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 they, you know, took one of the kids and took off, and we had six. Who you, how are you going to choose? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Were you an only child? 
I was an only child, exactly right. So it made it easier for your dad to basically yeah. decide, I'm out of here and you're coming with me. Well, you see, it, it, it's a, my dad's story is a whole long story of losing all his money in, in 1929, 33, and I could spend the whole program talking about that. And he married a woman 15 years younger than he did, and they didn't get along. And they last, the, the, the marriage lasted six years. And you've got to put everything in context. Right, right. Remember, this was the 30s. Mm-hmm. These were tough times. And she just couldn't. My father was a very difficult guy because he, he lost all his money. He was also from the, you know, from the old world. He believed that he was Abraham, you know, in Leon Uris's book. And he basically ruled the roost. And so she finally gave up in 1939 after six years of marriage and basically opted for a divorce, which was shocking in 39. Yeah. People just didn't do that. And then she took me from Los Angeles to St. Louis and she arrived back at her home where she was one of six siblings. And her father said, whoops, you know, I don't like the idea of a woman getting divorced. And sure enough, we don't need two more mouths to feed. So she was not terribly welcome. My father had Sunday visiting rights. And uh, in my book, I say it very clearly, and I think it's succinctly. He was feeling and not thinking. And she was thinking and not feeling. That's and an he interesting. arrived to take me out Sunday for his normal visit. Instead of, you know, taking me out to a movie, he just got on Highway 66 and headed back to Los Angeles and said, son, you're coming with me. And a few days later, he told me that my mother had passed away and died. And I'd never see her again. I never saw a picture of her. Wow. Never saw a picture of her. Didn't, wow. didn't, I didn't get three years old. What do you know? Yeah. And she basically felt that going home and not being welcome at home, that I might be better off with my father than she. So she was thinking and not feeling. So it's very, it's an interesting point. And uh, I think just people are very different. My father was very emotional and he just couldn't do without me. So he came and got me and we spent some, you know, the rest of the, the, the period together. Yeah. Sort of. <laughs> That's interesting too, because that dynamic is usually just the opposite. The man is always thinking and the woman is always feeling. Yeah, it is. It's very unusual. Yeah. My mother was a very practical woman, which I found out later on in life. Yeah. Uh, did you ever, uh, ever get to uh, meet her, or did you ever get to uh, uh, see any pictures of photographs of her? Well, that's the that is the, the secret in the book. Ah, uh, uh, my father died in seventy one, <laughs> and uh, he died of a heart attack suddenly. We oh. were a little bit estranged, although we had what I call peaceful coexistence. And when I was cleaning out his apartment, he left a suitcase full of letters. That was when he, I was 35, 36 years old. And so I, t- I started reading some of the letters. And they were all, I kept every letter that I ever written. And, it had, you know, it was very difficult for me. So I put the letters back in the suitcase. And we took it back to Greenwich, Connecticut, where we lived. 25 years later, when I was 60 years old, my wife, on a normal basis, cleans the house about once every couple of, couple of months, decided to throw the suitcase out if I didn't look into it. So I looked into it, and sure enough, here was a package. It was a rainy weekend. Here was a package of letters that I hadn't seen, and it turns out my mother didn't die. And it had, it had a, a, a divorce papers in there. He had kept those things. So I hired a special detective, uh, a detective agency, and they went after her. And sure enough, by using the name Hadrian, which is an unusual name, they found her in St. Louis. She was 81 years old, and her, her second husband had just died a few years before, and she had one son who was a doctor in Lexington, Kentucky, and I spent six or seven weeks thinking about whether I should add this woman who basically, in my mind, was not a good person because my father had said that she wasn't. He wouldn't talk about her, said she didn't like children. She's a bad person and so forth. That was the image I had of her. But after six weeks, my wife and I said, we've got to do this. And I wrote a letter, which is in the book. You know, this, I think I'm your son. 
and uh, call me on Sunday night if you would like to get there. She did. And we flew out there and I spent time with her. As I walked in, I knew she was my mother. First of all, she talked fast. Mm. Nobody in St. Louis talks fast and I talk fast. So that was it. And she also leaned over a little bit. Later on, we found out that she rhymed like I do for all kinds of parties. And she told, you know, off-color jokes too, which fit my, my, my mode very well. So she was, she could tell she was my mother. It was not emotional. When I met her, again, the thinking woman again, she accepted the fact what had gone on. After a few hours, it got fairly emotional. But I got to know her. We spent 12 years together. She and my mother-in-law and my aunt, uh, Barbara's uh, aunt, who all in their 90s, the three ladies spent a good 12 years together. And it was a wonderful. She died at 93. And when she died, mm. I went to see her. And she said, you know, Eddie, I'm, I'm just 93. I lost my car. I can't drive anymore. And she just stopped eating. She was never sick. So this was a woman who really was very practical in what she did. Her son, funny part of the story, she calls him up and said, Phil, you know that brother you always wanted? I never <laughs> told him. I found him for you. <laughs> and Phil and I, who has three boys now, are, have become great friends and we talk weekly. The mother was very, she was a character. I mean, she said, I'm not your mother, but, you know, call me every Sunday. And if I didn't call her every Sunday, she'd say, Long time between drinks of water. Mm-hmm. She could build guilt like nobody. <laughs> but she's a very interesting lady. And, and you know, we, we got along very well. And, of course, my father was wrong. He was an angry man. And he was angry against her as well. But, you know, writing the book also. My, my first ghostwriter wanted me to hate my father. And I said, we're not going to do your book because I didn't hate my father. I still don't hate my father. When you write the book and you understand what happens to a man who loses everything. He lost from 29 to 32. He came over as an immigrant. He was unbelievably successful. He got mixed up in the, the technology of the time called radio. And he went to it for RCA. He owned the stock. He owned it on margin. He had, how, he had buildings on 110th Street. There's a picture of him with his airplane. Mm. Everything was going great. And then, like a lot of people, he went completely in the tank between 1929 and 33. In addition, his mother was the stronger of two parents. She died during that time. Mm. His father was sort of a weak individual. He was in a business. He lost his business. So everything was gone. And so when that happens to a person, and I've seen that happen to other people, it means really leave some marks. And you have to give them, you have to give them a little bit of rope. And I did. And I, now that uh, I've seen everything, and I never really, my father and I communicated to the last day, in fact. Mm. So, but we went, we had basically gotten a, a sort of peaceable coexistence experience. Yeah. And, uh, but you know, it's, it's important. I think that I wish I, and I do, I had to go to, I have never been gotten help because in my day, you should got help. I had went to a woman, the Ackerman Institute in New York, and I told her my story, and she said, okay, I want you to start writing letters to your father and then answering them. And I would see her once a month, and I'd take those letters in, and she would criticize them. And I went through the whole process, and that helped me realize that, you know, it's a, it was a very, very difficult for him. Of course, at the time, I didn't realize my mother was still alive. So it was very, it's a very interesting trip, and that's why I say it sort of reads like fiction. And yeah. it really is real life. And uh, I always say it's not my fault. I just have to live it that way. <laughs> we're talking with Jim. Hey, Jim. We're, we're talking with Ed. Hey, Jim. And we're uh, we're discussing the uh, memoir he has written about his life, his parents, and uh, the experiences he's been through on the road less traveled, uh, which is one way of putting it. It's an unlikely journey uh, from the orphanage to the boardroom. And um, we are, are going to encourage people to certainly go to your website because um, that's where they're going to find out more about you, more about what you're all about. 
And your website, of course, is very easy. It's kind of like mine, richarddugan.com. Yours is edhajim.com. That's E-D-H-A-J-I-M.com. You can certainly uh, purchase a copy of the book through the website, but also find out more about Ed. As we continue here, excuse me, on Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for New World. What I find so interesting is in these kinds of stories is um, the the dynamics that are created out of, I'm going to use the kind word here, misinformation, all right? But I would be I would probably be remiss if I didn't say that from your perspective, your father lied to you. It yeah. wasn't misinformation. He lied. Um, how important was it for you, even before you wrote the book? And obviously, you spent a great deal of time with your father before his passing and so forth. Uh to to sort of reconcile. I mean, you said it was a peaceful coexistence while he was alive. Uh, has it gone beyond that since his passing, since 1971, uh, where you now that you understand where he came from a little bit more, you might have some what empathy, maybe not sympathy, but maybe empathy or at the very oh, least an understanding. Richard, absolutely. No, the, the book helped me, gave me a great, great deal of empathy, and I'm glad I never really became totally estranged. You know, we had what I call peaceful coexistence. The problem he had is he, he disagreed with everything that I did. Mm. When I left the Navy, he was unhappy. When I left engineering to go to graduate business school, he said, you you got this great job, why are you doing that? When I married my wife, he didn't. He rejected her too, because it turns out she looks a little like my mother. So it was kind of, a, you know, man marries his mother. So he rejected me all the way through. So, but I kept the relationship. We kept writing. In fact, when the second son was born, he actually spent a week with us, and it was fairly pleasant. So it was good. And but he died suddenly, so I didn't really get to reconcile with him. And I, I really recommend to people that they try to reconcile and try to understand the trips that their parents are on, or their just their close friends even, and mm-hmm. understand it. And the book helped me as I traced the whole period and understood everything that happened to him. Lost everything. Yeah. Married a young woman. Lost his marriage. And then he couldn't get a job. And then he took a job in an industry where he was ill-fitted for it. I mean, he was technologically capable of being a radio operator aboard a ship. But the other people aboard a ship were totally different than he was. Mm. And the story is, uh, there are a lot of stories, in fact, stories I just found out about five or six years ago of things that happened to him when he was a merchant marine. So, you know, a man who's a vegetarian, who's obsessive about his looks and so forth. Being a merchant marine was not a good thing in the 40s and 50s. It just wasn't. Yeah. And, but he had a very difficult life. And, you know, if you understand difficult lives, it leaves marks on you. Yeah. And, uh, and of course, you know, he, he coming from the background he came from, women, you know, were had their place the way. He would let my, would let my mother work or anything like that because he, that he felt that's what she did. She was in the house and she was there to cook for him and take care of the children and so forth. And so it was very difficult for him to understand the whole process. But yeah. Anyway, and uh, yeah. yeah that, uh, and, but, but the marks left on me, I mean, I, I, I basically would have liked to reconcile more with him. And, and going through this process of writing letters helped a lot. And writing the book has helped a lot. And uh, it's, the, it's the 50th anniversary of his death uh, on June 1. So I'm going to go to the cemetery wow. and uh, talk, give, a, give, give a chat up, chat him up a bit. Well, let me ask you in re- reference to that period. This is prior to his passing. 
When you look back on that period in your life, <clears throat> up to 1971, and you look at where you are today, and this still ties in with the, the previous question I just asked you, would you say that that period in your life uh, as, as, uh, has, ha- has helped to form and shape who you are today in, in a positive way to where now you are able to, I, I, I would guess, maybe assist or support or facilitate or maybe mentor others who may be facing uh, similar situations where they're now adults. Uh, maybe they grew up in an orphanage or maybe with one parent. They had been lied to about the other parent, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that now they want to know about their past. They want to know where they come from, the other half kind of thing. Richard, you're so insightful because it's exactly what I'm doing now. I've been the book. The book has opened up a whole new avenues for me. You know, a group called Wiley, which handles only foster children in colleges in Boston. I've become involved with them. I would just I just interviewed the Foster Care Foundation of the United States. I'm going to become involved with with helping them do things. I you know this book now is directed basically one of the organizations just bought 2,500 books yesterday to distribute to their less than privileged children that are going to college. I really want to focus on those first gens and all the people from foster homes and orphanages and so forth that have gotten to that point where they're going to go to school because I feel very importantly that first year is so important to recognize how difficult it can be. Kids don't flock out academically. They flock out socially. And I want to convince them that these backgrounds, these disadvantages they had as children actually become advantages. That's it gives interesting. Them, gives them adaptability. Mm. Think about being uh, in 15 or 20 different places before you're 18 years old. You get pretty adaptable. Mm-hmm. Going from one schoolyard to another schoolyard, you understand the rites of passage pretty quickly. and You learn how to adjust or you're in trouble. You get resilience. Resilience is like a muscle. The more you use it, the better. Perseverance you sure get. And you just brought up the main one of the main words. All my life I've had empathy for people that have had backgrounds like me, and I can communicate with. And finally, most importantly, in my stage of life, I have gratitude. In fact, people say, when I'm 84 years old, they say, how are you? I said, I'm grateful. Mm. And that's really a very different thing than this hurts, you know, a little organ recital or something like that. Yeah. But no, so the, the, these, this is really my thrust right now. I'm really spending a lot of my time seeking out those organizations. And I didn't realize how many organizations in the world, there, in the United States there are, that deal with these first gens or these kids from... From, from foster homes. And so helping them and, and the letters I'm getting back on the initial forays have been just fantastic. I mean, one gal said, you know, I'm re-inspired by you. I, I, I know I can do it. And these, this pays the, it pays the bills pretty quickly. Yeah. Makes you feel really good. You know, it's, it, and to me, the, the saddest thing about this, this conversation in, in terms of orphanages or foster homes is some of the sad stories that come out of the foster program. Kids are put into certain homes, <clears throat> one right after another, after another, after another, moved place to place to place until they're 18. And they sometimes, sadly, they don't even make it to the age of 18. Somehow, some way, something goes really haywire. The vetting process of the foster family just wasn't there. I mean, and especially, I'm sure that it's better today than it was decades ago. I mean, we see some of these movies and television programs, and I'm sure there are books and what have you out there. 
of kids who lost their lives in a foster home because of the the strictness, the all of that, the discipline and all those kinds of things, either because they just couldn't take it anymore or they were they were physically injured to a point, damaged to a point where they lost their lives. <clears throat> and that's the downside. My and, and uh, granted Fostering animals is not the same thing as fostering children, but my wife and I, <clears throat> we have fostered uh, kittens, newborns, under two, uh, under two months and under two pounds, where we care for them. I mean, we go in and we feed, if we have to feed them by hand and all those kinds of things, and then we have to turn them back over. And that's an interesting process in and of itself because there are some folks who get so attached to the child that they know the process is there's going to come a point when we're going to have to let this individual, this child, go to whatever the next level in their life is. And yet we have this abiding love, this, 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 that we don't want to be separated. There's, there's this bond that's been created. And to rip them out of that is, is, uh, is there a, is there a part of that for you? Because, uh, and, and I'm curious, I, I, I didn't uh, ask you this aspect, obviously orphanages. You were in the foster program as well? Yeah. Well, when my father took, kidnapped me, he really couldn't take care of me because he was a merchant marine and he was always going to sea. Right. And uh, so the, actually the first two years together, he spent about half the time at sea and I spent half the time with a neighbor. But when the war broke out, he put me into the foster care system, Catholic foster care system in in Los Angeles. And just like you said, my first, my first foster home was something out of out of a book. I mean, Charles Dickens. I mean, they were terrible. They, they took it for the money and so on and so yeah. forth. It was an awful experience. And as I was in five foster homes during the war, five different foster homes, the last of which was fabulous. So I got the feeling from both sides. I actually lived through the, the, the not so good one or the very bad one. And then the, the end showed me what a foster home could be. And exactly what you said, Mrs. Robb really didn't want to lose me. She loved me. And she had one son. She, she had, they treated me just like her child. And so that was a very difficult experience for me to leave. My father came back after the war. He wanted me to be, to be together again. And uh, he was on the East Coast. And so I went from Los Angeles to New York to meet up with him. But leaving the, the Robs was very difficult. But it did show me what a, what a true home could be like, what mm. parents and love and so forth. But the key to it, and that's why you, you said a lot of kids don't make it, what the key to it is never be a victim. No matter what happens, if you can just constantly have a, what I call a conversation with the inner voice, things will get better. Let's look ahead. Mantras like that in children's minds early on really can work. That was the case. I always felt I could get better. Movies help, by the way. Oh, yeah. Because you always, yeah, you said, you know, there were places out there that things were better. You went to Saturday afternoon, you went there, John Wayne, you know, carried oh, the western one, you know, yeah. and so forth. So, that and then of course Mrs. Rob, the last foster home, said, "You know there is a home out there where things are good and people love each other and so forth." But it's the idea that never be a victim and let's move ahead. Let's always and in sense, when I was eighteen years old, I took my whole eighteen year experience and buried it. And the psychologists would go crazy that you can't do that. Mm. But I buried it, and a little denial never helps. So I never had to deal with it. And that's why, you know, I, I just put it behind me. I said, what am I going to do? What's my next problem? My next problem is getting through my freshman year when I had the wrong haircut, the wrong clothes, the wrong attitude, and the wrong feelings, you know. And for six months, it was it was hell on wheels. I got rejected by every fraternity on campus, you know. My, I walked into my calculus class where I was a super math student in high school. All of a sudden, I sort of didn't, you know, I wasn't, wasn't the top of the class anymore. I had to, 
you know, was, the whole thing sort of rejected me. You know, my 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 teams at high school, I won most of the, I won more, won championships almost every year. You know, my my local football team didn't win any any games at all. I got on the freshman basketball team, and I was too really too small to really play. So, you know, freshman year was tough. And but you know, I had this I, this concept of never be a victim. What's ahead? What's next? And that's what I'm also trying to communicate to kids because they get to school, and it's not so much what is, it's how they feel. And if I can change how they feel, and also to say this is a, a marathon, you know, this is only part of the game, and maybe it's even just the rites of passage. Get through this one, you're going to be actually stronger afterwards. You know, and I've got to, and if I get a couple kids doing that, then it really, I say, it pays the effort that I'm going through right now. We're talking with Ed uh, Hagem, and edhagem.com is the website. That's E-D-H-A-Y-H-A-J-I-M.com. Uh, here on Tell Me Your Story, I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and I thank you for being with us. And, uh, Ed, I thank you for being with us as well. One of the other aspects I'd like to talk about a little bit here uh, in regards to, uh, I mean, you grew up and you started your own family, right? Right. How do you, when you look back, in spite of or maybe because of the way that your father was, and it's just the way he was, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that that's your perspective these days. You know, it's no fault of his own. It's just the way he was. It's like people say to me, like about my parents and, and uh, from their from their perspective, and as I've shared with them, you know, they they couldn't really protect me. And when I was in school, getting bullied, and they even uh, uh, said so in so many words. We're sorry we couldn't protect you better when you were in school. And this was after I'd gotten out of uh, college, and I think I was in my twenties or thirties. Uh, and they did the best that they could with what they had at the time. Exactly. When you look back at your father. How did he mold and shape you, the father today? Well, he gave me the one thing that, you know, you have to give your children, which is unconditional love. Even though he essentially abandoned, you read the book, he abandoned me three or four different times. Mm -hmm. Completely abandoned me. Foster homes, orphanages. And later on in one orphanage, I became a ward of the state because he disappeared. But he gave me unconditional love. His letters, his conversation was always love. I love you more than anything else in the world. So that's the first thing, and that's what I tried to do with my children. We have uh, been married for not 65, but 55 years. I have eight, three children and eight grandchildren, seven grandsons. And it's, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a process. Mm-hmm. You know, you, and, 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 you, and I, 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 in my work, I basically break life down into self, which you have to solve early on, family, work, and community, which I, is the giving back. And the balance between work and family has been written too. I mean, I'm writing on it now too. It's very difficult conversion there. But I've worked very hard on trying to communicate with my children. And, you know, they, they all now have their families. All three of them have a family. It seems to be doing okay. You know, it's not simple. Uh, our relationships are good. We see them very regularly. And I have certain little tricks that I put in place, like, you know, difference between a ski vacation and being on, on a boat for a vacation. Ski vacations, kids, kids disappear at night on a boat. They're stuck, and they got to talk to you. <laughs> no, it's a it's a little trick. Or early on in my marriage, you know, it, it, you know, my father didn't get along with my mother. What we did, we took car trips. You know, the first day is terrible, mm. but over a four or five day car trip with your wife, you talk about everything. You get everything talked out, and you have also experiences. So, you know, my father shaped me. He gave me unconditional love. He also 
told me things I should never do. You know, he got he got angry visibly at other people. Mm. I, I still have anger. It, one of the I got a lot of advantages from my disadvantages, but I got some disadvantages which hung on. I mean, I was an angry person for a very long time, but there I directed the anger internally. I tried never get angry at anybody else. He got angry at other people, ah. and I that was something that I really found unattractive, difficult. Never did him any good, you know. And so I learned that. I always find from people. My, some of my bosses the same way. There's two kinds of bosses. Some you learn good things from, but almost as importantly, there's some things you learn that you should never do from bosses and from parents. Oh, yeah. so my father, I learned that from him as well. Mm-hmm. I also learned that no matter how hard it is, you know, you, you got to show that you've tried. And he tried, but he just couldn't do it. He couldn't find work. And as I reviewed his life, he spent an entire year, 1946, 47, looking for a land-based job. And couldn't do it. And so, wow. you know, and then nothing, I mean, as a man, in those days in particular, today also, you know, if you, you can't get a job, it is just so painful. And you got this child you kidnapped, and who, you know, who you really love and so forth, mm-hmm. you know. And this child now at, eight, at 10, 11 years old is starting to get very independent. I mean, I can remember arguments my father and I had when I, it's not in the book, actually. When I was 10 years old, and I, you know, talking to him about things, I got to be pretty independent. Because I, you know, he hadn't spent that much time with me, yeah. And so it became difficult for him. I became a little bit of a difficult character, which, you know, breaking away, I had to become independent. In fact, is the summer of '47, he left me, and I spent about a month by myself in New York in a hotel in, in a hotel room in Coney Island until I went to the orphanage that year. Yeah, because he he couldn't find a place for me. So you know, so there are things that he gave me which I could I I have to pass on, and also things that I learned that you shouldn't do. Yeah, and. Those are the things that you take away from your parents. And I'm sure that he would probably, if he's still alive today, say you're right. Uh, yeah. You know, he'd come to that conclusion. Because later on, at the last stage of his life, in his, in his 70s or in the early, late 60s, we had long walks together. And that's one thing I still do with my children. Another thing he gave me. We used to get his hotel rooms on 43rd Street in New York. When he was in town, I'd go visit him. We'd walk from there to the George Washington Bridge, essentially, and back and talk the whole way. And all my kids talk about the fact that Always taking a walk with dad. Whenever they come and visit me, we take a walk for a couple hours. Because mm-hmm. I think walking and talking is another little what I call a trick. It becomes a habit that really works. Yeah. And I, I, try to, I want to pass that on to people because, you know, when you get to be a certain age, all you have is experience. And if some of your experiences work and you can give them to other people and then they work for them, hallelujah. Well, of course, there's the other side of it, too, and that is that um, there are those uh, who will want to, especially parents, sometimes teachers uh, or uh, el- your elders, as, as the phrase is uh, used, who um, will tell you uh, that they don't want you to make the same mistakes they made. And that's a wonderful sentiment. I, I think that's beautiful. Uh, you know, I appreciate that. But I have to make as the phrase goes, I have to make my own mistakes because I have to learn from that point of view. Um, my fa- And I, I'm sure that there are some phrases, some sayings, even some words that your father would, uh, would uh, offer up over the course of time. I'm quoting my dad all the time on this program, uh, talking about, uh, for example, life and living and dying. He says, eat, drink, and be merry in moderation. Because no, <laughs> because nobody gets out of this world alive. All right, that's that's one of them, and the other one was um, find a job you love to do because you're going to be doing it a long time. Don't get stuck like me. 
Now, he didn't stay stuck very long after he said that because he went back to college. Uh, this was, I think he was still in his, um, in his 30s, maybe his early 40s, and he got his computer programming degree. This was back in the 70s when they still used wow. fanfold paper and punch cards. And, of course, we as a family had lots of drawing paper at that time. Um, so, you know, there are, and then there are those situations, which I won't share at this particular point in time, things that my dad did or said that I, I don't want. If I had kids, and I do not, uh, I would not want to pass on. So when I'm with other kids, other young adults, as a matter of fact, when I was married to my first wife, we lived in a house, two-car garage with a big basketball pole, and I put a backboard up and painted it with the Phoenix Suns logo and all of that stuff and a rim and basket. And net, and uh, the kids would come over and play, and I would tell them, "Look, this is not a competitive court here. Okay, this is to have fun." And they would come over, and we would play, and so forth. I remember once going down on them on my ankle, uh, and that was the end of my my <laughs> basketball career. And then somebody one night came along, and they jumped up, grabbed the rim, and pulled the backboard down. <laughs> And nobody came to say, hey, I'm sorry, we did this, da-da-da-da-da. And I was so disappointed, I just took it down and I just I said, I'm just forget about it, you know. But while it was up, I was trying to encourage them that, I, you know, competition's great. If you have teams, it's wonderful. But we're not doing that here. This is just a shoot-around. We can play horse or any other games with the basketball. Um, and trying to pass on those kinds of perspectives from either my parents or other adults that I was around in my neighborhood. Next door neighbor, uh, Phil Helms was his name, or the James family, who was a family of nine children. It was a Mormon family, and we were a Catholic family. And supposedly that's, um, <clears throat> that's oil and, uh, and water, uh, not oil and vinegar. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now, that's according to the dogma, okay, not according to the families. We got along just fine. We really did. Uh, but it's just amazing what we learn from the people around us that we bring forward. And then they these kinds of things, what do they pop up as we get older, as we have our own families and, and move forward? I want to ask you, as we continue talking with you, and again, who are we talking with? We're talking with Ed. Hey, Jim, he's written a book called On the Road Less Traveled. It is a journey. It is an unlikely journey from the orphanage to the boardroom. And we're going to get to that. <clears throat> I want to ask you about your inner life. Where, because obviously you started your life with a set of parents, mother and a father. And then at that one point, out. What about your philosophical or spiritual upbringing? Well, I was lucky in that I started in in the Catholic school. I started in the Catholic school. Started in Catholic schools, and so you learned the golden rule pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. The golden ruler. You know, oh yes, the, yes. Oh, ow, yes. You, ow, you remember, my knuckles. I, 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 my knuckles right there. Exactly right. So I got that, and, and in some respects, that's you know all you need. <clears throat> uh, but what I do in my book, of course, the, the epilogue tells you about my philosophical uh, approach, which is the four P's: passion, principles, partners, and plans. And the principles one is when I recommend people collect principles all their life. And I started with the Golden Rule and the Ten Commandments. I mean, it was drilled into you. You, you know, I went to church twice a day. Yeah. And then, of course, when I went to Jewish orphanage, I went to synagogue twice a day. So, and so I really got a very strong spiritual background. 
that convinced me that you had to be a good person, but necessarily not necessarily join an organized religion. And that's one of the mistakes I've made in my life. My children, I think, are very well grounded, but they don't have really a very strong relationship to organized religion. And so it's very difficult because I think organized religion does do things for you. It gives you some rules that you should follow. But I've collected principles all my life, and it's helped me. And I write them down. I recommend that you collect principles and write them down. Things like, you know, I found out my real passion was helping other people do better than they could. They thought they could. That was a, I put that up. I mean, I learned that in college. I mean, I did that in college, and I learned later on. That was my first experience with it. I formed a humor magazine, and I collected 30 people. And each one of them I encouraged to do better than they thought they could. For example, going out, and I said this a number of times, we had to fund the damn thing. So I had to go out and sell advertising to local businesses. And I said to people, if you sell advertising to people you've never met before and something that doesn't exist, you're going to be pretty lucky all your life. So that was a passion. Then I found later on, I had to couple that passion with basically making sure you can accomplish almost anything if you don't give, don't worry about who gets the credit. Mm-hmm. Combine those two, and now you have a business philosophy which works. And you got to live by it. I mean, in my 20 years of, as a CEO of a company, I only paid myself the, the largest amount one year out of 20. That was walking the walk rather than talking the talk. Because I did, I wanted to give them the credit, and I really believed that they deserved the credit. Yeah. I was the largest shareholder, but they deserved to make more money in each of those different years. So I collected these what you call principles or or mantras all through my life, and it really has helped me enormously. And I I believe that just like your passions change over life, your principles are added to or change over life. Mm-hmm. You know, you start off with the golden rule, and also somewhere along the line, which lines you won't cross, because when you get into this. You know, these, these problems in the world, boy, it's very difficult unless you've decided early on, this is a line I won't cross. Because you say, I've already highlighted that line. Because when you get there, it's fuzzy. It's not exactly 100%. And, and you say, well, I just step, no, you don't step across that line. Because if you do, you violate the principle. If you violate a principle, it can get you in a lot of trouble. And you can spend the rest of your life suffering. Mm-hmm. You know, and my business, in the financial business, I've seen very successful people just slightly step across the line. And it's, it's over. And, yeah. it's, and it doesn't really work. So I pass that on. And each person has their own principles. And principles basically are in context of what they're doing with their life. The, the financial you know, person driving toward making you know, money and financial resources and so forth. Very different than a friend of mine who goes to Ethiopia and operates on spines. You know, he has a different set of principles which he lives by. And you have to understand that. And, you know, and I mentioned if you're in a particular industry that has a particular time to person, you're going to get a certain kinds of reaction. So you have certain principles to handle that. And you also have to find your place in that whole arena. So, yeah, you're right. And I think that's one of the things that I try to pass on to people is, get, you know, study your passions and then study your principles. And have you got the right principles for what you're trying to do in life? And then accept certain things that, you know, I tell people, if you're going to go into an E.D. Moss scenario or a nonprofit, recognize that you're not going to make a lot of money. And thank God. But you're going to get satisfactions which you wouldn't get otherwise. Yeah, and you're going to deal with people that you you can love and and be involved with, and you know have different types of aspects. So, I, I find that to be, and luckily I have had both things. I I was you know I ran a company for over 20 years. I spent 50 years on Wall Street, but I also spent 30 years as a trustee at the University of Rochester, ending up as a chairman of board of trustees, which is a totally different experience, requiring totally different partners and totally different attitude of what you do every day. And I think that's very healthy to understand there's differences. Also, the difference between being a businessman and a father. My commute was an hour. And part of that commute home from from Wall Street to my house in Connecticut 
was to try to convert my own attitude. When I went from having to deal with an extremely difficult situation at work, coming home and finding out your six-year-old daughter just had a fight with her friend Jane, and it's the end of the world. Mm. You know, and to convert, to be able to communicate with with that person and understand that that problem was as serious for her as mine was during the day is sometimes almost impossible. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and 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 it it does sound like it's insurmountable, and yet you know it's it's what is your willingness to make that happen? I I myself have had situations where um, I. I said, you know, I, I was in a marriage that ended in a divorce after 15 years, but at the 10 year mark, <clears throat> um, uh, things shifted and changed. And I said, look, I'm an intelligent guy. I can figure this out. I can make this work. And I tried for five years and it just didn't work. But, you know, it's one of those things where my attorney at that time said, you know, you should have bailed at 10 and not waited that extra five just because. Um, it still turned out well. She's she's still doing uh, she's doing as well as as she can uh, on her own. But I just I, you know it's just not it wasn't in the cards. And uh, I'm now with uh, another beautiful woman who uh, uh, we live here in Santa Barbara. She's a Santa Barbara native, and uh, we've done a, 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 a I would say a fair amount of traveling overseas to Ireland twice. You know, which was a lot hmm. of fun. Uh, as as noted in the picture behind me, uh, off of one of the islands of Galway, uh, Connemara, Galway, uh, Ireland, and uh, it's um, it's just one of those things where you know you you draw upon what the people in your life gave you as you were growing, and when you look at the period of time, the brief period of time, and this is following. Um, uh, your your we'll call it abduction. Um, your brief period of time with your mother, your birth mother. What can you share with us in that regard about some of the things that she left you with, the legacy that she imparted to you, that you now are imparting probably to your children. Well, the the most important thing was was, was I think the idea that that. You know the, the difference between feeling and 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 thinking, and and it's a, it's a balance. You know, and 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 I really believe that she thought that I'd be better off with my father, and she kept saying that because look how well you turned out. She kept saying, you know, look if you'd have stayed with me, you would never have done quite as well. So that that I always ask people to to balance that feeling and thinking because it's very important. Mm. You, you you can't go in one direction as my father did or the way my mother did back and forth. It's got to be kind of a balance. She also gave me a sense of humor. You know, I, I've always had a pretty good, my wife says he's funny, but he's not fun. But she was, she was a fun person. And I, I learned that from her, that there is just, you have fun. You know, don't be so serious all the time. Yeah. Given my background, I was a pretty serious person. I was always, you know, working, even in the Navy. I, you know, I, you know, I went ashore like everybody else did. But on other nights, I'd be taking courses from the University of California, which other people didn't do. And, and I was kind of different in that respect. But she was fun. And and she also really communicated with people extremely well. She was president of a local religious organization and so forth. And she enjoyed playing cards. And she, you know, when she was 90 years old, her 90th birthday, she wore high heel shoes. She had her eyes fixed and she drank <laughs> martinis. You know, she's going to live it to the end. And that would never happen with me. I'm already, I, I mean, I stopped wearing ties only because everybody else started wearing ties. <laughs> I was always too serious. 
and and so that, that you know and that you know I was only sixty years old when I met her, and so she really she rounded the edges. Ed, you're too serious. You can't. Believe, you know she would she would jump on me a little bit, and it was very healthy for me. So I I passed that on to my kids. It gave me a little bit more balance. Uh, it also gave me mother love. I mean, I started to understand after the three or four years of, with her what mother love was really by, like and so forth. But I had that for my wife. My wife is an absolutely spectacular human being. And, and she's, uh, I always kid about this. I, I love her more than yesterday and less than tomorrow. A couple of weeks ago, I was giving a talk. I said, well, sometimes we skip a couple of days. But, you know. <laughs> <laughs> no, but 55 years, she, she's been, she's just very, you know. She's very concerned about the children, the grandchildren. She's, you know, we, don't, we don't miss a birthday. We don't miss an anniversary. All because of her. Yeah. And she's very feeling. I mean, she is a true feeling person. I mean, it, mm. and, and that's wonderful. You know, and that, and that, that, that taught me a lot. My, mother ta- my, my wife has taught me much more than my mother has because we spent more time together. And she's taught me what it is to really, you know, you know she keeps me from getting a big head. She makes me stand up straight. She pays attention. And, and that's very good. But my mother gave me, you know, a couple things that, you know, you, you don't get unless you get a mother love. And and she, uh, but the sense of humor, the idea of fun, the idea that, you know, and also the thinking. I mean, I may say, you know, I'm getting to the point that I'm considering the end. And if I could end the way my mother ended, you know, that'd be wonderful. Yeah, being able to handle death the way she handled it. She mm. said, it's time. She's like, I can't drive my car. I don't like living in a senior residence. I don't like these old people around me. And I'm just, I'm going to stop eating. And she did. Yeah. And she was never sick. It was really an interest. So, so she gave me three or four things, which I, you know, all you can ask people. If you look back at your parents, too. Yeah. You look, at, it's three or four things you get. That's all you get. And, you know, you should, you should cherish those things. And I do cherish them. Yeah. I had a, a very strange experience when I received the two last will and testaments from my parents. The first thing that surprised oh. me was I was getting two different ones. One from my mother and one from my father. They were basically they were basically the same. Okay, they really were, but apparently, from a legal standpoint, each individual, whether they're married or not, uh, has to have one anyway. So I read through it and I thought, oh, okay, that, I, again, I don't have any problem whether they leave me in anything or not. They've already given me everything that I could ever possibly want, right? Right. Well, a few days later, I'm going. I wonder why they. I wonder why they didn't leave me anything in the will. Okay. <laughs> It's like I completely, you know, it's just like my brain leaked it all out, right? And so I was going to call my sister, and I thought, no, I was going to call my parents and ask them. No, no, you know. And then the thought occurred to me, and this, I think, was my intuition, saying, go back and read the wills. And I went back to read the wills, and I found out, you're an idiot. It leaked out of your head. They did leave you something. Now... My brother, they left. They gave him something a little extra. My sisters, a little extra. There was nothing extra for me. And you know what? I'm good with that. Okay, I am. I am part of um, a bequeathment that's going to be split six ways after their passing. That's fine, and it may not be that much, but whatever it <clears throat> is, it is right because they gave me. Uh, that adaptability. I think that they're not being there when I was in school protecting me from the bullies. I did really well in track and field, Ed. I learned yeah. how to run and run fast. 
Right. Okay. And I collected a lot of awards. I did. I did. I did real well in grade school uh, track and field. It was it was great fun in that regard. I wish I hadn't had to go that way, but you know what are you going to do? But um, it's one of those one of those things that I found so interesting and and in my brain, you know that and that kind of goes to that thinking and feeling balance thing. I'm curious as to the third part I want to throw in there, and that is listening to that still small voice or your intuition or that gut feeling. Uh, how does that play into the dynamics of the other two? See, I, I very strongly believe that that's what my second book that has, has been written already. It's in this concept of the four P's, find your passion, find your your, your, your principles, find your partners, and find your plans. I believe there's only one constant in your life, just what you just described, your inner voice. And to be able to have a language, that inner voice gives you the intuition. And I want to develop a language which is simple and understandable. And, and, it's, and it's a lifetime experience. You, your inner voice collects your changes and passions. Your inner voice collects the principles which you believe in. Your inner voice collects your partners and describes your partners, those you need for different things. Mm. And then it also says, here are all my plans. This is what, you, what you're going to do. Now, I know man plans and God laughs. But if you don't have a plan, you don't know where you're going. So when you decide to make a change, you know what I always say, the turn in the road is not the end of the road. Because when you come to a turn in the road, you know where you wanted to go, and you're going to have to turn, but you at least knew where you wanted to go, and it will help you make that turn. So that's what that's sort of what I, I consider to be a, an, an important consideration for people, as, and they can do it as early as they can in life and start to collect. Remember, that there's a China, think about a Chinese medicine cabinet where they have different cures in there. This I want, I want four or five drawers, the fifth drawer being purpose. Drawers where you put things into, you can open them and look in there and say, this is what I thought. This was my, my passions. Ba- mm. Math, science, baseball, basketball, and girls. Okay? That was <laughs> high school, college. Math and science morphed into engineering, then chemical engineering. And then and then actually sports in, morphed into ac- extracurricular activities. I played intramural sports, but my extracurricular activities came to that point. Girls kind of stayed constant. And then I found out that really what I wanted, my passion was not engineering, but management. You know, getting people together mm. to create a new product or a new project. And I found that was my passion. I, I, and then I said, I'll be a manager. It was great. And that, that worked out. And it sort of stayed a long time. The same thing, principles. I mean, the last, last principle, which I think is so important for people my age, is gratitude. I mean, just, I mean, a friend of mine, Walter Green, wrote a book called This is the Moment. When he was 70 years old, he stopped everything, wrote a list of 44 people he wanted to thank and spend the year going to them physically, writing down why he wanted to thank each one of them. Most of them, he was going to die. And I said, Walter, you're not leaving, are you? He said, no, it's something I want to do. <laughs> he went to each one of them and thanked them. And halfway through, his wife said, why don't you write a book on the responses? And he did. It's called This Is a It's a thin little book. He's a guy who lives in San Diego um, and uh, a good friend of mine, yeah. obviously an unbelievable character. He's Mr. Gratitude. He actually has started a new thing called Say It Now. He thinks people, unfortunately, you know, give people praise after they die. So that's crazy. Yeah. He started a program. He's, he's designed a, a program where you can, you can basically, uh, you know, give people credit before they die. It's a, it's a, it's a virtual experience and so forth. Yeah. But giving, giving gratitude. That's one of the things that I, you know, I come, come, I really feel very grateful to people. And I, I in fact, all my signature on my email say thanks Ed at the end. Cause I think it's really, you gotta thank people. They've done a lot for me. Anyway, that yeah. was that, that's sort of what, 
that that's that third part you talked about. Mm-hmm. It's the billing. Looking back, I did this. I have, I have stacks of yellow pads of things that I wrote down, you know, positive and negatives, and passing that on to kids, saying, write it down. Write down, you know, what you believe in and so forth. Because, you know, thinking is very fuzzy. Talking is pretty fuzzy. You know, writing is the only definite form of communication, and even that's questionable because of lawyers. <laughs> but, <you know. laughs> that's why we have lawyers. But I think you got to get a kick out of your reading the will again and recognizing that. That's something we've decided. Again, I pass on to people, if at all possible. Yeah. Don't differentiate your children after you're gone. Because yeah. I've seen so because I live in a, a community where the, a lot of people, you know, they give too much to this guy. Too much. In, during your lifetime, you can do anything. You can give the, give the, the minister all the money and, and give the banker no money. But once you're dead, it's, you know, one third, one third, one third. Or, yeah. else, you know, else, or else you're, you're sitting there and listening to your children you're tearing each other apart. You know? mm-hmm. So that, that's, the, that's my, my belief. Other people can believe yeah. that later. Well, I remember I when... Yeah, well, I remember when my mother's mother passed, my grandmother on her side of the family, and um, uh, I remember the squabbling that went on. My my, my mother was l- labeled or was designated the executrix. I guess that would be the term these days. I don't know. Yeah. And um, she just really didn't like what was happening with her sisters and brother and her. And uh, if anything like that were to happen, and let's just say my parents decided to change the will but never sent us copies, what have you, and it turns out that we were all out and then they started fighting over it, I want out. I'm not – it's not worth it. It's stuff, okay? It's their stuff. They accumulated. It doesn't belong to me. I didn't generate it with my energies. They generated it with theirs. And uh, I've got enough stuff of my own that I'm going to have to figure out what I'm going to do with it when I, <laughs> you know, when I go. So why do I want to add to that? So you're absolutely right. You know, you're absolutely right. and 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 the other thing too is, and I have a, a best friend. Uh, now I'm 61 years of age. Okay, um, I met my best friend in sixth grade. Ooh, that's in good. 1971. And we have been friends ever since. And we have now been talking about how uh, – and, and I again, I, I actually feel very proud about this. We, have, we will have been friends come this September because that was when the school year started. Fifty years. Fifty years going strong, going strong. And we've had a couple of bumps along the way where I remember <laughs> in grade school, I was given at Christmas this wonderful, big, poofy, cold, warm coat. Now, because back then it was cold in the winter, even in Phoenix. And we were playing one day and the and I'm going to put it this way. The coat got ripped. OK, <laughs> but I blamed him and we got into a tussle. We were both hauled into the principal's office. You talk about principals. I got one. His name was Mr. Ridgeway. And he sat us down and he said, look, you guys, because he could see the friendship that he and I had, that my friend Doug and I had. And he says, look, you know, your friendship isn't worth this torn coat. That can be repaired, you know. But and, and we... We worked it out, and we went on to have all kinds of great experiences since then. We then took a trip to Kansas. Uh, my my father's uh, sister lived there, and he wanted – my friend wanted to go to uh, 
oh, what was the Olathe, Kansas, to the Nazarene College. He was wanting to be a pastor, and he wanted to check it out. And so we went through this whole thing. I think it was about a week's trip. Drove back, went back through Texas and all that good stuff. And we got home, and, of course, we were sort of arguing over who owed who money. You know, well, I lent you this and that and the other. Well, yeah, but I lent you the. I says, you know what? Our friendship is too important. You know, if you're willing, I'm willing to just call it even right now. And we move on. And we did. You know, in spite of the fact that he still owes my money. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that's, see, that's in that partner. If you read my book and also the picture I give the kids when I give graduation speeches, you know, find someone sitting next to you that you can be with for the next 50 years because that person is so that's when you, besides your wife and you know your, your family, mm-hmm. the, the friend <clears throat> is really important. I, I had an unbelievable friend at college who basically we were we were engineers together. <clears throat> we were in the navy together. He went to Harvard Business School, and I never would have gone to Harvard Business School except for him. He called me up. I was working as an engineer. He said, "You've got to come up here. You've got." He beat me to death until he got me to come up there. We spent the rest of our lives together, mm-hmm. like yours. We were together for fifty years until he died, and but he was my best friend. When he was dying, I would go to his house the last year, and the first thing out of his mouth is, how are you? How is the family? Mm. This guy was, no, he was going to, he maybe had a year left, maybe, you know, and he would ask about me, are you working too hard? I couldn't get him off me and talk about him. That's the kind of guy, he was a a deacon in his church, and he was just a good human being. He spent his whole life proselytizing my, which he felt was a failure, (laughs) but, but he, but but he was a, he was the kind of person, and I, I recommend to people find a couple of friends. I still have one left, Phil, that I was in the, one of the orphanages. He's you know he's 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 a, he's a, a year older than I am, and I try to see him on a regular basis, and we talk because they know you, and you know you basically develop a love for each other. Yeah, and yeah. Our, it's a true concern. There's no financial question. There's no you know who's more important than the other guy, and and it's really wonderful. I I just had to. In my book, the book is done wonderfully. I have a picture in there of me and playing baseball, PSAL baseball, when I was 12 years old. Two of the team called me and said, let's have lunch. Oh. And I, I had lunch in New York just a couple of weeks ago with oh. these two guys that I played ball with when I was 12 years old. And, and we also formed a basketball team. We remembered the fourth guy. We couldn't remember the fifth guy. <laughs> this mm. is, you know, that's 60, 70 years ago. Wow. 70 years ago. Wow. So these two guys looked me up. One of them worked for the New York Yankees, and the other guy ran a, a publicity firm in New York City. And we, 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 had, we spent the best two hours of my life. It was just absolutely – my wife gets that. My wife, every time I say that, she says – I remember when I shot 70, 78, 9, and I said, best day of my life, she says, what about our marriage? <laughs> yeah, you, you, you got to kind of temper that careful. just a little bit. You got to be careful. One of the best days in my life. <laughs> one of the best days in my life. And we had one of the best lunches I've ever had. I mean, we just communicated. He used to go, two guys are both six foot two or three, and I'm, you know, five foot, five foot seven. It used to be five seven. And, uh, you know, I was the smallest guy on the team by far. But we got a terrific kick out of it. We played softball, then we went in right into the basketball season. And, uh, we couldn't remember the fifth guy. I'm still trying to figure yeah. it out. <laughs> Do you know that uh, when my friend told me, uh, and again, we went through grade school, high school, and college together, uh, and even that has some very funny stories in it, but uh, when he told me not long ago about the passing of a couple of the guys who were actually the bullies in school that harassed both of us, mm. 
I have to say there was absolutely no pleasure, no glee, no joy whatsoever. I actually felt bad for the guy. Sure. You know, I thought, wow. Because, again, they were the same age as I and he, my friend and I, were both 60. He's He'll be 61 in December 2021. I'll be 61 in June 2021. And so that means they were in their they were 60, 61 in that general area. Same age. I'm doing great. He's doing great. And here's this guy who, for whatever reason, just couldn't couldn't make it last. And again, he didn't go into any particulars as to how uh, it may have been heart. I, I can't remember exactly. But, you know, I remember my father telling me now my bre- my friend and I used to talk about this during high school, about how we were looking forward to going to our 10-year class reunion after we graduated, right? <laughs> I want you to know, as of this conversation, we have never been to any of the reunions. Never. <laughs> but my father has been to many of his class reunions over the decades. And, of course, uh, we've talked a little bit about it. And he says, yeah, and, and the group gets smaller and smaller every year. And that's just what happens. I mean, it just is. But for him to continue to go, obviously those people meant something to him. Um, that to me is, I think I, that must be where I've, I've gotten my perspective on people, regardless of their behavior that I've had in my immediate life, okay, like in school, that I've always wanted to give people the benefit of the doubt. Even as a kid, I would have loved not to be one of the cool kids and not get bullied by these guys, but I would have really liked to have been... Fr- they seemed like, uh, on the surface, they seemed like nice guys. And of course, as I have learned over the years, especially doing this program, the bullies are more afraid than, than I am. Although, you couldn't have told me that back then. <laughs> no. <laughs> But what do you think about uh, your experiences in that regard? Have you always been the type of person who, regardless of how they treated you, uh, that you 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 really didn't want to have that kind of dynamic because you never knew? Like I live in this small fishing village, as it's called, um, and I don't want to create any, no pun intended here, any waves <laughs> with people because I may come across them. Later on, and my gosh, to have that kind of tension, I, I don't want to build that. You get to a certain age and you recognize if you spend any time with people, very rarely are people all bad. Yeah. And then, and, and you take the good parts of people and it really pays it pays dividends. And again, here my father was a very argumentative towards a person and he didn't get along with very many people. That gave me a message that it was a mistake. But I have found just like you have, there is no reason at all. I mean, you don't have to spend the time with a person you don't exactly like, but in most cases, you know, if you give people the, the, the benefit of the doubt, they are really worthwhile knowing and not being annoyed at, not being angry with, because that doesn't do any good at all. I guess in my lifetime, there have been a few people I've been angry at, and I, now I reflect back on every time, reflect back on those relationships. Somewhere during the relationship, I realized how foolish it was to be even angry or dissatisfied with them, because you just don't know what happens in people's lives. Mm-hmm. I mean, you mm-hmm. really don't. You don't know their background. Given my background, the things that happened to you as a child, I mean, just silly little things like, I'm still not very good on Sunday, because Sunday was visiting day at the orphanages, yeah. and I didn't get visited. So Sunday was it's always a down. My wife would kind of poke me in the ribs. All right, now stop it, stop that, because I'll, I'll go down. You know? And so you don't know what's happening in people's yeah. lives. I mean, 
But so, and and I, I must say a very funny thing. Somewhere in my forties or fifties, I read a book about smiling at people. And being in New York City, you're walking on the street all the time. Just smile at people. You'd be shocked how many people smile back at you. It's the stupidest thing in the world, but it and it makes you feel good. You know, yeah. it's a crazy experience just to smile at someone. You know, or laugh. You know, mm-hmm. I've, I've got friends that know how to laugh. Yeah, don't makes, point. Makes, don't don't makes, point makes, and makes, laugh. <laughs> yeah, it makes the conversation much more much more interesting. You know, so I find those things. That you're exactly right. You're exactly right. Yeah. I mean, that, that that's what that's what makes it all worthwhile. And to be annoyed at anybody, you can. There are certain people you just can't get along with, and that's life in a big city, and you just don't spend much time with them, and that's okay. Or you, you let them out of your life, but don't be mad, don't be angry. This using energy in the right directions is one of the things I really want to pass on. Mm. This idea: don't be a victim. Use the energy to get where you're going. And when you use energy to dislike people or worry about people or be unhappy with people, that's negative energy that's worthless. It doesn't yeah. do you any good at all. I never found yeah. I never found any of that. Even especially in sports. I mean, that's the worst oh. possible. I mean, if if you get mad at the other team, you're worthless. You know. Yeah. And if you just lay cool, man. Let someone drop it on this hoop in or or in golf, you know, you guy 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 irritates you and it calls you on something you shouldn't call you on, doesn't work. No. So I find that's that usually just constantly use that energy to take that next step rather than trying to deal anything behind. Don't make don't be unhappy with anybody. It doesn't work, especially yeah. and especially your children. I mean that that that's something that you you really have to work extremely hard on. And my wife is brilliant on that. I mean, she 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 treats kids like you know, she just knows how to do it. She has her master's degree in counseling, and we in the book it says that I was her. Oldest, longest, and best-paying client. <laughs> only and her only client, I think. Too. I that's, married her right after graduate school. That's very good. That's very good. I consider myself my wife's patient because not that she's a doctor. She's she's been working in cardiology for over forty years as an uh-huh. MA and as a tech. You know, administering the echocardiogram tests and the EKGs right. and and stress tests and all those kinds of things. And the doctors have uh, have begun to count on her and you know how a doctor will um will write up a summary after a patient has left well with her doctor who do you think writes up the summary she (laughs) she does she writes up the summary and then he just signs off and approves it because he trusts her that much that's how much knowledge so when she tells me this that or the other thing uh it was like back in uh, in in july of 2020 uh, I beg your pardon, of, uh, yeah, 2020, I was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. And, and it was because uh, I was peeing a lot and drinking a lot of water. I mean, it was going in and coming out and going in and coming out. And so um, the night before, uh, not even thinking about it, I had two small bottles of Coca-Cola. They were glass bottles, and they were what's called the Mexican Coke, which is the one that has real cane sugar in it, okay? Sure, yeah. And I drank both of those. Well, anyway, we go in the next day. They check my blood sugar. It's 544, okay? Oh, boy. Then they drew the blood, and they checked the A1C. It was 11.2, all right? So my wife and and so my wife says we you know that we got to get this thing straightened out and of course here's the thing I've had blood che- tests before they've checked the A1C it's always been normal five six five seven five eight that kind of thing and the doc after I got out of the shock for about fifteen twenty maybe thirty minutes uh, he says you know Richard it's going to be a long journey I said uh, no no it is not going to be a long journey because I knew how I'd gotten there and it was because of the pandemic. Not because of the virus or anything like that, but because what did we all go to? 
early on. We went to comfort foods, lots of carbs, lots of sugar. All right. And my average monthly was 275 to 300 was my blood sugar level based upon that A1C of 11.2. So that afternoon we went to lunch. We ordered a uh, fried chicken sandwich, no bread, no fries, salad. And from that point forward, I have not had a soft drink. I drink these uh, uh, sparkling flavored waters that have zero calories, zero carbs, zero sugar. Okay? And I got my A1C and my blood sugar down in less than two months, in mid-September. So that when I went in for my first check, I was already down to 57 that's <laughs> true. That's it, the body has a wonderful way of adjusting the whole thing. Yeah. With it, 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 uh, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. I, I check. I, I try. I take two. I have two 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 uh, uh, annual physicals a year, and, I, and all those numbers are very very known to me. Yeah, I know my glucose number right now. You know, slightly <clears throat> high. I was 109. I was a little bit worried about that. Doctors said, "Don't worry about that." So yeah. But, you know, well, I've found, too, that with my doctor, and I appreciate his bedside manner, he's he's very matter-of-fact, but also very eager to answer questions and even eager, eager-er, if that's a word, to say, you know what, I don't know, I'd have to look into that. <coughs> and what doctor says that, you know? <coughs> Pardon me. But um, she, my wife, she is very much on this stuff. She was very happy when she started hearing in late August, early September uh, that the, the blood sugar was dropping, 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 dropping back down where it's supposed to be in the low hundreds. I've had one as low as I think 79 or uh, what have you. And I know that the bottom of the normal range is 70. The top of yeah. the normal range, I believe it is uh, 170. I think that's yeah. right. And so as long as I'm within those parameters, and this is the other thing, too, about like blood pressure, let alone my eye pressure, because I have to have that checked because I lost the vision in my left eye due to glaucoma. As Ooh. long as I know where the low and high ends of normal are, I don't have a problem. Uh, but good. you know, And yeah, okay, so if it's starting to inch up, let's say the blood pressure is like to 140 or 145, okay, yeah, maybe I need to do something. But if it's in the 130s or low 140s, you know, hey, it fluctuates. All of these numbers go up and down. Our we're lives, individual too. Uh, we're, we're individual, individual too. Who's to say that my normal, my personal normal isn't, let's just say, 135 or 140 over 85? Right. Who's to right. say? And how do you know? How would you figure that out? I don't know. But right. the bottom line is, is that. It's wonderful to have people around you. You were just talking about the, the friends, the partners, yeah. the, one of the four P's there, uh, and having these kinds of folks around you. And, and she is one of them. My doctor is another. And um, But I think that the strongest advocate, and I'd love for you to talk about this before we wrap up here, the strongest advocate that you can have on your side is you. Exactly. And that you have to develop over a lifetime. That's why I say your conversation, and it goes both ways, by the way. When I was 35, my inner voice got to the point where it got hubris. They said, Ed, you can do anything. And I failed. It's in the book, you know, in addition. So what happens is it's a testing process through your entire life, and your best advocate is you. Second best one is that spouse, though, or Mm -hmm. a really good friend, someone who you cultivated, who you've been with on a regular basis. It really is a... It's really, I have a, I had a partner at work 
the six foot five Dartmouth graduate that spent 35 years together. I could never have done what I did without him. So in each case, having great partners is very important. But the only the biggest advocate is you. And that's that's what I call the, the four buckets, self, work, self, family, work and community. That self has got to be solved early and it's got to be a process early on. Mm-hmm. Now, say, well, Ed, you give me a lot of work to do. Life is a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> there, ain't no easy, there are no easy roads, even no. the ones that are less traveled. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Speaking of which, the title of his book that we've been talking about, the memoir that uh, he has put together for us uh, to enjoy and read and learn from as well, is On the Road Less Traveled. It's an unlikely journey from the orphanage to the boardroom. And uh, I would like to thank you so much for giving us I mean, really, so much time here on the program. This has been a great pleasure, and I'm hoping that uh, when things, as they seem to be as our conversation unfolds here, are starting to open up, we're starting to get back to whatever the new normal is. Normal is, yeah. Okay, because it isn't going to be the way it used to be, and I'm actually excited about that aspect. I've been seeing news stories. For example, I love watching CBS News Sunday morning, and they Mm. focus on some of these new ways that we have chosen to do things during the pandemic that some of them they're going to hang around for a long long time and i think that's great uh but thank you so much uh for uh, well, for you, sure. i'd love to get together pleasure. one of these days too. yeah it's been a lot of fun it's really good it's i do have three final i do have three final questions for you uh, and um, I ask these of my guests. You may have answered them to some degree during the program, but uh, I like to ask them directly before I do. I want to remind you, the listener and viewer, that we are available on Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., Monday mornings at 1 a.m., and Wednesdays for a special edition of Tell Me Your Story uh, at 9 a.m. That's Wednesdays at 9 a.m. We stream live at those times at richarddugan.com. We are podcasting all of the programs on all four slots there uh, on SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM, Blueberry, and other locations that you folks are reposting our interviews to. Thank you for doing that. We're also on YouTube where you can watch these interviews. I hope you'll subscribe. As of our conversation, Ed, I've got 24 subscribers. And you know what? That's okay with me. I mean, you know, I've only been doing this for a short time videoing and uh, – um, I think I have about 111 or 112 interviews up on YouTube right now. And, you know, great. Uh, but if you don't subscribe, I hope you watch. Uh, the viewership has gone up, which is great, regardless of subscription. So uh, if you can, participate in that regard. Also, folks, if you uh, resonate with what we're talking about, the guests we're bringing on the program, the subject that we ta- subjects that we talk about, and you'd like to support us financially, we would be gratefully appreciative of that. Uh, all you have to do is go to the homepage of richarddugan.com, scroll down a little bit, and you're going to see all the information. You can also uh, just use the email uh, that is posted there as well, and uh, PayPal, we use that for your security as well as ours. And please participate in the decade of twenty of the uh, perfect vision to the 2020s. Uh, go within, spend that quiet, peaceful uh, time listening to that still, small voice. And uh, to my guest, who's the author of On the Road Less Traveled, my guest, Ed, um, Ed Hagem, at, he- at edhagem.com. My first of three perennial questions, I guess you might say, is... Who is Ed Hagem? Who is Ed Hagem? That's a question. He's an almost 85-year-old person who would like to communicate the experiences of his life to help a few more people 
have a few less bumps in their lives. <laughs> married for 55 years with eight grandchildren and three, three children and, and very grateful, a very grateful person. What is it that you hope to or want to achieve through the work that you're doing now? Uh, focus on a couple of areas. One, children, first gens and kids who get through those first 18 years and get to college and help them get through the first couple of years because they so many of them flunk out socially rather than academically. And the second thing is, is to help other people in transitions in life, going from one industry to the other, one job to the other, one relationship to the other. And so I've had so many of these transitions in my life. I hope to communicate ways of making that a little easier too. Mm. And finally, what is your life's purpose? My 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 uh, namesake here, who wrote the road less traveled, Scott Peck, said, "Love is giving to others." That's what I hope to do and have tried to do through most of my life. Well, Ed, hey, Jim, I thank you so much for joining us on the program once again, and I look forward to staying in touch with you and also connecting with you when your next book does come out on the four P's. Richard, it's been my pleasure. Have a great day. And you too, and I'm Richard Dugan, and I thank you for listening and watching. Tell me your story, New Paradigms for a New World. We're giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. Until our next broadcast, podcast, videocast, love to lol.